Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. Kids are sometimes hard work, often fun and always expensive. But due to the magic of compounding, a small amount of money invested when they're young can grow into a substantial nest egg for later in life. I want to know how much to set aside, how to build their portfolio, and how to keep them from blowing the cash as soon as they turn 18. And in today's dumb question of the week, we ask, is government debt effectively stealing from future generations? Okay, let's get into it. So Romin, you and I, we both have kids. And I think it's fair to say, it's pretty tricky to know what is always the right thing to do. And sometimes it feels like an achievement just to keep them alive and to keep yourself sane. Yes, <laughs> so, job done. You know, if they make it to 20 <laughs> and they're off, woohoo. <laughs> and I think the same is true with investing for them. It's not always clear what the best thing to do is. I guess the first question is, why are we even thinking about investing for our kids? Haven't we got enough to worry about? The thing is, for many people, their reason for living is their children. It's really a focus of their life. And you also start to think about legacy. One of the reasons to invest is for your own retirement. But for some people, they also think about leaving something for the kids and sort of helping them on their life journey. So I think for some people, that's very much almost instinctual that they try to do that. But it's not always easy, as you say, to know exactly what to do to get them there. Because if you give them too much, then the drive in their own life to succeed and to work hard and to find fulfilment in their job, you know, that becomes that much more blunt because essentially they've got their wealth mapped out for the rest of their life. Yeah, I think that's true. But I also have the sense that the younger generations now might face challenges that the older generations didn't. So the world's moved away from defined benefit pensions, university costs a lot these days, house prices are expensive. I mean, it was bad enough for me, I'm in my mid-30s, but I think for a kid now, who knows what it's going to be like when they're an adult. It's impossible to know, I think. But as you say, there are certain things which are certainly more difficult now for kids than they were for me or, or even for you, I think. But in order to achieve those goals, there's a lot you can do. And the earlier you start, the younger they are when you start investing for them, the better, because clearly one of the benefits of investing really young is that you have huge compounding effects. Yeah, if they've got one thing going for them, it's time on their side. <laughs> yeah, and that's probably the best resource any investor can have, is having that time. I mean, when you look back at the compound, you think, oh my God, why wasn't I investing when I was five years old? <laughs> I'd be so rich by now. <laughs> I still remember putting money into a kind of savings account when I was about eight. And I was really excited because it was 12% interest rates. And I thought, that's amazing. That dates you, Roman. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, inflation at the time was probably more than 12%. But of course, I didn't understand that at the time. So I guess when you're thinking about investing for kids and they've got this hopefully long life ahead of them to compound, presumably we're thinking about taking a lot of risk and would 100% stocks be the way to go? I think for kids, it would make sense to do that. The reason is simply that over the long term, the differences in returns between equity and bonds really starts to make a huge difference. So on average, bonds return about 4% less than equity. So over the long term, it doesn't make a lot of sense to put money into bonds. So I think for kids, certainly over a 20-year horizon, if you're saving now when they're born, for when they're 20, or maybe even for a sip when they're 55 or 57. <laughs> right, we're building their pension when they're babies. Yeah, then, you know, over that kind of period, it wouldn't make sense to hold bonds. So I think really it depends on horizon, your asset allocation. And in this case, the horizon is just huge. So I think that makes a lot of sense. Sometimes people start saving later, you know, when they're teenagers, 
And this is saving for universities, so you've got a shorter horizon. So there it would make sense to take a little bit less risk. Yeah, I guess the question is, what are you saving for? And that's true whether you're investing for kids or for yourself, right? If you're trying to build money up for university costs or house deposit in the future, then yeah, the time horizon is obviously going to be a lot shorter. And there's typically talk of de-risking in the five or even 10 years before the call on the capital comes. And there's a cultural difference here as well. So for example, I worked with a chap from India and he was talking about Indian weddings where you have to have gold. So, you know, one of the things you might want to save for is gold for that wedding. So, you know, it really depends on the culture that you're in. It turns out that seems to be the culture in Austria where my wife is from as well, because we were planning to get married and I was like, do I even need a ring? And she was like, yes, you do. (laughs) 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 And it seems to me that When we're thinking about investing for our children, a lot of the things that we talk about with investing generally, keeping fees low, for instance, just become even more important when you're compounding for such a long period of time and minimizing tax. So using tax advantaged accounts. So in the UK, that might be a junior ISA, for instance, or a junior SIP. That can make a huge difference. And the good thing about a junior ISA, if you're based in the UK, is that anybody can contribute, you know, granny, friends and family. Ramen. No. (laughs) And that's great because everyone can kind of give it as a Christmas present and then, you know, it can compound quite nicely. And it doesn't have to just be the parents. Because often, you know, when you're a parent, if you've got more than one kid or maybe you don't have a huge income, then it can be difficult to max out the ice of your kids as well as your own and manage your own finances. So that helps a lot, I think, allowing that. So I think, you know, we underestimate the value of these ISA schemes in the UK. I do speak to many clients who aren't in the UK and, you know, they really don't have anything anywhere near as good as an ISA. And junior ISAs are great. Yeah, don't take them for granted because managing to sock away £20,000 on your own and then you can get, I think, £9,000 in a junior ISA. That's a lot of money you can compound without paying income or capital gains tax on it. Yeah, it's a really amazing gift and we should be grateful. (laughs) Yeah. But certainly the fee side of it is really important because just as interest rates compound over time, so do fees. So let's imagine that there's a pound that you have to pay in fees today. This thing's going to be compounding for 20 years. That's a pound that's not compounding for 20 years. So the repercussions of fees early on are absolutely huge. So there's a really good thing called the T-Rex calculator, which I often talk about. This is created by Larry Bates. And what you do is you say how much you're going to invest, what the annual return is, what the annual fees are, and then the period of time over which you'll be compounding. And it's just incredible, you know, just a 0.5% change in fees over a 20-year period makes a huge difference to the amount of gains that you keep. So that's what it comes up with, this percentage, which is the percentage of gains you keep. So the T-Rex is taking a bite out of your returns. Exactly. And it's a big bite. So if we look up a T-Rex score for something like a junior ISA, where you start off with 9,000 every year, the annual returns 5.2%, and the annual fees are 1%. And let's say we do it for a 30-year period. In that case, the T-Rex score is 68%. Now, that means you get to keep 68% of your money and 32% of it is given to the fund managers and to the finance industry. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? It's just the 1% fee, but a compounding effect is massive. Whereas if you cut the fee to 0.2%, now you get to keep 93% of your gains. So I think that really illustrates that huge effect of compounding over time. It's good to talk to kids about as well because they love dinosaurs. (laughs) 
<laughs> I have dinosaur socks, you know. I'm very proud of them. <laughs> it doesn't surprise me. <laughs> uh, socks and shares. All very good. The other thing to say about fees is because brokers really want to attract young clients, because people don't tend to switch brokers very often, so if they get them hooked early, it's to their advantage. There's a lot of good deals out there for junior ISAs where they, in effect, subsidize the accounts and charge no fees in some cases. So I know Fidelity charges no platform fee on its junior ISA, and it gives discounts on the fund fees for some global funds. So you can get a really good deal and drive fees pretty close to zero. But you have to shop around. There is a big difference between platforms. So the lower you can get it, the better, because that's a really important factor. Because, of course, you can't control market returns, but you can control the fees. And what are some of the other considerations we might make when choosing a fund to put in a junior ISA? I think from the parent's point of view, the really important thing is low maintenance because you don't want to be fiddling around with the allocation over time. So if you do have a choice between an accumulation fund where the dividends are reinvested and an income fund where you get little drips and drabs of cash put into the account, which you then have to reinvest, clearly from the parental point of view, accumulation is better. Now, in the US, they don't have accumulation funds. So if you're producing a Roth IRA for your kids, then, you know, that's not an option. You have to be a little bit more active. I think some brokers will automatically reinvest the dividends for you. You can set it up to do that. Now, another thing is the actual fund that you choose. Should it be global equity? Should you have more than one fund? And really, you can keep it very simple. I think a single global equity fund is probably good enough for most people. Some people I speak to talk about having a tilt like growth or small cap value. So these factors which do work long term, or at least they have historically, might pay off over the long term. All I'd say is stick with it. You know, even if it underperforms, stick with it because that's how these things are designed to operate, which is over the long term. So in my daughter's junior ISA, we do just have one fund and it is global equity, but it has an ESG screen. And I've told you this before, and it's just because we don't want her to grow up to hate us when the planet's destroyed. Like, we did all we could. We put your money in something which had an ESG badge on it. Look, she's going to hate you anyway. You'll be an evil capitalist in her eyes. Well, I call her the littlest capitalist. Oh, very good. My wife doesn't like that very much. (laughs) (laughs) I've been trying out Baby Buffett recently as well, but that doesn't seem to be going down any better. What's that? As a nickname. Oh, I see for her. I thought there was some kind of podcast, Baby Buffett. (laughs) No, oh my God, there should be. (laughs) Teach finance to infants. Yeah. Another thing that people often talk to me about is should I have an emerging markets tilt for my kids' investments? Because if you imagine now China is roughly 5% of global equity markets, at least that's its weighting in MSCI, ACWI, the all-country world index. Seems to be going down every week. Yeah, at the moment. But the question is, should you have a tilt to emerging markets? Because growth should be greater there. And maybe in 20 years' time, China will be a much bigger part of capital markets. Now, you don't have to do that. And personally, I probably wouldn't. I'd favour simplicity over taking a risk with, you know, a big China gamble or an EM gamble. But, you know, certainly some people think that that's a good idea. They've got this very strong conviction that EM is the place to be in terms of growth. So all these different tilts are basically thinking, oh, can we get an extra percentage point or two on the returns? But if you think about it, the massive amount of returns are going to come from this long compounding period. You don't really need to try and boost your returns even further. Yeah, you let time do the work, not return. I think that strategy is much more likely to succeed than you know having these big tilts to a certain factor or country or particular sector. 
I mean, how would you think about this idea of compounding? Well, certainly if you put money into an ISA and you trust your kids to take it out at 18, they'll spend it on whatever they need when they're 18. If you put money into a junior SIP, that's a pension for your kids, then it compounds for much longer. And it's a little bit like building a cathedral in the sense that you'll never be around to see the end result, but it's still building something beautiful for the future generations. But really, the amount you have to put in is much, much lower to have a huge payoff when your kids retire. So let's say you wanted to make your kids fully maxed out in terms of their pension. So let's say a million in their pension in real terms. That's whatever a million will be in future. So one million in 2022 money would be about just under four million in 2086 money, right, when they'd retire. Are you assuming like a 2% inflation here? Assuming 2% inflation. And all you need to put in is 2,880 per year for 15 years, and you're there. The government grosses that up to 3,600. Yeah, so you get 720 in tax relief. So that goes up to 3,600. You do that for 15 years, leave it for 50 years, and hey presto, you end up with a million pounds in real terms in today's money. So that essentially would be your child's retirement sorted for the whole of their life. It is tempting to do that, isn't it? Think about it. Like a lot of people probably could afford a couple of thousand pounds a year. And this is it. You know, I think the difficulty is that you're not going to be around to get the gratitude for what you've done and the sacrifice you've made. But the thing is, I'd be more grateful to my parents now, knowing what I know, for having done that, than I would for some lump sum they gave me when I was like 18, which I probably didn't spend very well. Yeah, just getting a physics degree you never used. (laughs) (laughs) I use that every day. What are you talking about? What, your PhD? Yeah. Well, maybe not the PhD. Why don't we ever call you doctor? Only assholes get called doctor. (laughs) I mean, you know, the first year you get your PhD, you insist on it, and then, you know, you just kind of ignore it. But just going back to the SIP thing, there is one downside, I think, which is that there is a lifetime allowance for a SIP, which is just over a million. And there are huge tax advantages to putting money into a SIP. So once your child is an adult and is working and earning... If they're already at the stage where their SIP's going to be maxed out, they've got no more they can put in a pension, they're giving up a lot of tax advantages by not being able to contribute. But that's a nice problem to have, isn't it? It's a nice problem to have, (laughs) sure. (laughs) I'm just thinking through optimization. But then you'll be thinking your whole life, oh, I've just got to make it through to 55 or whatever the retirement age is by then, it's going to be 57, I think. And you don't know what legislation is going to be on lifetime allowance. You know, will it go up with inflation? Won't it? Maybe they'll scrap the scheme altogether. Who will have colonised the UK by then? (laughs) (laughs) What language will we be speaking? (laughs) So it's hard to know what the future will hold. It is a big gamble, isn't it, to invest and be reliant on government policy for, let's say, 60 years. Yeah, I doubt it's going to be anything like it is now. And the other thing is, I think it's so important to think about how you invest for your children in the context of your own finances and the family finances. Because I think it would be a nonsense to put all this money aside for your kids. And remember, it's locked until they're 18 in a junior ISA. And then something happens in your life and you find yourself short of money. That would be crazy. Yeah, I mean, obviously not everyone can afford to put money aside for their kids as well as themselves and their pension. In fact, the vast majority of people can't do that. So I think it is a privilege for some people to be able to do this in the first place. The other thing to think about is that if there is spare capacity to save into your pension it might well make more sense to save into your pension than into a junior ISA if it's an either-or situation because there are better tax breaks for your pension generally. 
and you keep control of the money. So if you're worried about your kids taking it at 18 and blowing it all, <laughs> if you keep it in your pension, because it might mature about the same time when you can get access to it at 57 or whatever it is at the moment. And the inheritance benefits are very good for something like a SIP. So if you die before you're 75, there's no tax implication for the people who inherit the money. I guess there are complications there because, for example, if you have lots of kids, it may be that the individual payoff for the kids isn't going to be great. Or if you remarry, you know, there's a whole kind of succession issue. Pension sharing, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's difficult. It's difficult in some situations where it's not simple in terms of family arrangements. You mentioned multiple kids. That's the other consideration, isn't it? Is what you do for your first kid, say, you want to be able to be fair and do it for the other kids. You don't want this one kid having this massive investment pot and then you're like, oh my God, I can't, I can't put the same aside for the next one. <laughs> we just watched this film, Idiocracy, where there's a kind of really smart couple who are in their 20s, they're yuppies. They're listing all these reasons why they can't have kids because, oh, look at the market. You know, we can't afford it right now. And then it shows this other couple who are basically popping out hundreds of kids and the IQ of the population gradually diminishes. Yeah. Love that film. Yeah, I've seen it. It's an interesting concept, which it does make you think. (laughs) But I mean, some people do actually not have kids because of the expense, and it is a concern. Yeah, definitely. Whereas some people seem to not care at all and just hope everything will be okay. So people approach it very differently. But you're right, you know, if you've got a big ISA for one kid maybe a smaller one for the other, then... It's a good social experiment, but it probably doesn't play out well for your family. (laughs) They'll probably have to pay huge amounts for therapy later on because of it. And they're the kid that doesn't have it. Exactly. So it's a double whammy, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) It's also good to put money into a junior ISA and know that they're going to get their hands on this at 18. It might be a decent sum by then. It's kind of putting a gun to your own head or a ticking time bomb. You've got to get them educated before they're 18 or it's all going to go. It's so funny. When I speak to people about this, I say to them, you know, how do you feel about your kids taking control of this when they reach 18? And some of them say, oh, they'll be fine. You know, I've got complete faith in my children to use this money sensibly, or I don't care what they do with it. And then others say, there's no way I want them controlling this money. (laughs) You might not know what your kids like, though, until their teenage years. And you're putting money in, I don't know, say when they're five years old or something. Who knows? Yeah, they could suddenly switch. You know, they could be sensible up to the age of puberty. That often happens. And then suddenly hormones kick in and it's a very different story. I mean, it is a real point, though. I looked up some data which came from the US, a study which was done about generational wealth and how it's passed on and how it's treated across generations. And the stats I found were that 70% of wealthy families, and that was defined as families with investable assets over $3 million, so pretty rich families, 70% of them lose their wealth by the second generation, and a stunning 90% of them lose their wealth by the third generation. And this was a study done by the Williams Group. And it was kind of summarized by saying the first generation creates the wealth, the second generation spends it, and the third generation blows it. (laughs) So you kind of want to avoid that happening, right, if you've worked hard for all this money. (laughs) So if you look at the reasons why heirs often tend to blow the family fortune, this study attributed 60% of it to lack of family communication, 25% of it to the heirs being unprepared, And then poor planning was just sort of like 3%. So it was mainly that they hadn't taught the kids or been open with them about how to treat money. The comparison can be made that, you know, it's like giving your kid a car and not teaching them how to drive. I think that's a good description. And, you know, it's kind of fun. If you can make it interesting, then I think probably one of the best things you can teach your kids is about money and investing. 
because by taking the stress out of that aspect of their life, you can make their lives that much better. I mean, it's not really taught in schools, is it? So it's going to come down to you as parents to do it. Well, not the important stuff. You know, they talk about things like setting up a business, but the investing side of it, there's nothing as far as I know, which is very odd. I mean, what are the most important lessons then for kids to learn? I mean, one clearly is around delayed gratification. Yeah, I think that's one of them. Another one is the importance of understanding base rates. You know, base rates is something I always talk about, but if you're looking at long-term returns, look at what works. Equity works, bonds underperform, cash is even worse. Gold just keeps up with inflation. So in terms of real return, that's another really important thing to understand. How does inflation affect your investments? So a little bit of pocket money and a budget and work out how to spend and save? Yeah, that would be a good way of doing it. Or maybe looking back in time and saying, look, this is how much this suite would have cost 100 years ago. (laughs) Really? You know, if you do the opposite and you talk about, so a cup of coffee is going to cost $10 at this point in your retirement, people just don't believe it. You know, you think that can't be true. It just seems crazy. But it will be true because, you know, an average rate of 2% for 30 years has a huge effect on prices. So that's why I think when you're planning for retirement and looking forwards in time, understanding inflation is very important and very few people understand it. Diversification is important. So many kids nowadays would be interested in things like crypto. I saw this thing with an FT journalist who'd moved into teaching, Lucy Kellaway, and she writes these hilarious articles about what it's like. And in one of them, she was talking to kids about investment and every single one of them equated investment with crypto. Interesting. So for them, that's all it was about. And it was about huge returns, going to the moon, you know, that kind of thing. Exactly the wrong message, and what's very unlikely to succeed. The thing is, crypto is so volatile that it grabs their attention, right? It's harder, I think, to get kids interested in the idea of, in 30 years' time, yes, your money will have compounded (laughs) to a massive amount. But the thing is, by the time your daughter or the next generation of kids comes around, we'll have been through so many crypto crises. And I think the returns will have come down to much more boring levels because unsustainably high rates of return simply can't persist. If crypto carried on growing at the rate it was growing, it'll eventually become the entire global economy. That's just not going to happen. People who I know who have older kids and have been through it all, they'll share advice and they often talk about Teach your kids through doing, not by telling them. So give them pocket money. Let them make some decisions. Let them run a lemonade stand or manage a small fund portfolio of stocks or whatever it is. And there's some good research which shows that by the age of seven, most children are capable of grasping the value of money and delayed gratification and that some choices they make are irreversible. And this was done by the University of Cambridge. So I think the earlier, the better, really. No point waiting till they're 16. And my mum always taught me by actually allowing me to hurt myself, you know, in a limited controlled environment. So yeah. when she was teaching me about a hot stove, she actually <laughs> let me, I mean, I didn't burn my hand, but she let me put my fingers really close to it and it really hurt. So, you know, I, I learned that lesson. So if you do let kids have single stocks, for example, eventually they're going to get burnt. You know, it's going to crash. They'll probably sell it when it does. So making those mistakes and learning from them, I think, is really important. So, you know, allow the kid to burn their hands, maybe by not diversifying or losing money in crypto or whatever it is. Or making the family a fortune and then just take it off them. Oh, even better. I like that. (laughs) (laughs) Baby Buffett for the win. (laughs) I mean, there are also lots of quite good resources nowadays that, you know, if your kid does show an interest in finance and investing that you can share with them. 
I did come across one, Roman, which might be up your street. Oh, what's that? So this was a comic that the Federal Reserve has made in America, and it combines two of your favourite things, obviously the Federal Reserve, but also science fiction. Oh. And it's this weird, weird, like, thinly disguised propaganda, I would say. So <laughs> let, me just, let me just share a little bit with you. Oh, I'm so excited. So this character says, It's nice to meet you. I'm Q7, a blue cube from the planet Alpha Numerica. Oh. Tell me, how does Novus maintain such a vibrant and healthy economy? Well, says the other character, <laughs> the people here are friendly and we like doing business with each other. Plus, we recently set up a central bank that helps keep our economy running smoothly. Yes. Our central bank is a bank that promotes maximum employment, stable prices and moderate long-term interest rates. Come on, I'll show you. And then off they go on their adventures. Hey, wait a minute. <laughs> Those policies seem familiar. Yeah, so the Federal Reserve is really trying to indoctrinate the kids here. <laughs> I kind of like that, though. There's a whole suite of comics they've issued. Amazing. I can't imagine many people look at them, I've got to say. It's not going to be very popular, is it? I mean, I think that's the challenge that schools come up against, really, is that for a lot of kids, it's so abstract, this concept of, you know, working for money and then saving it, investing it, and all the costs you've got, that you can teach kids about it, but a lot of them are just going to ignore it. I think if your family does have significant wealth and you're looking to preserve it over generations... The best piece of advice I came across was it might pay to forge a family mission statement. So you kind of provide a framework and a context for, you know, what are we here for? Why are we investing this money? And just lay out a roadmap for the savings, the spending, donations you might make and how to grow the wealth. And say, this is what our family is here for in a monetary sense. So one of my friends is Russ Hayworth and he does the Family Business Podcast. And he talks about this kind of issue all the time, you know, the kind of generational issues and passing knowledge from one generation to the next, how to solve disputes between generations. And what's interesting is he's actually involved in a project where one generation records their life story. And once it's recorded, then they kind of lay that down for future generations so that you can learn how granddad made his money. And he can tell them about all the problems and the difficulties, which imagine, I mean, imagine you could do that with your grandfather. It would be really interesting. It'd be fascinating, yeah. And I think it would provide just amazing context. You'd see yourself more as a kind of custodian of the family's wealth and inheritance, rather than that it's your money and yours alone. But also the problems that crop up with wealth. I mean, people often assume that if you are wealthy, that many of your problems go away. But of course, that's not true. They just morph into different problems. So I think understanding those problems from the past and seeing the similarities and how things don't really change. You know, a lot of the problems that you had 100 years ago with staff, with legacy, with competitors, all of this kind of thing doesn't really change, even though the actual business itself might change radically, almost unrecognisably over time. So I think that kind of ability to speak across generations that we now have in a very compelling way, you know, if you have video or audio content, it is very engaging, much more so than a book, say. I think that's fantastic advice. But having this kind of family motto, I think that's brilliant. Yeah, because it might just help you avoid the just stupid mistakes people make. You might not burn your hand on the stove. You could learn without it. Because I read that the average recipient of an inheritance, it takes them 19 days to buy a new car. <laughs> so they're not hanging around. Really? I mean, I just think if you inherit a big sum of money... It's tricky. We've talked about lottery winners in the past, haven't we? And how yeah. it's a kind of a curse of the lottery and you're more likely to go bankrupt, for example, if you win a big amount on the lottery, which seems insane. 
and a similar problem with inheritance. So I think what I would say is no sudden moves. Yeah. Right? <laughs> you get it. Baby steps. And maybe even carry on working. I think some people do do that. You know, if they do inherit a large sum, they carry on doing things. But just change the nature of work and ensure that you are engaged in something which takes you outside your immediate bubble. Because that's what happens. People become unanchored. Yeah. And suddenly the focus of your life changes from, you know, having to do work and spending that time at work to having a lot of time in your hands when you're thinking about things. Yeah. And I think the real problem is if it comes as a surprise. So if it's like a lottery win. And there was an interesting stat that I read where in America, 67%, so two thirds of wealth holders, don't share any inheritance details at all with their heirs, with their children. And so it must come as this massive shock. Obviously, the children are going to know, okay, we're relatively wealthy, but they haven't been involved in decisions. So I think you have to do everything you can to avoid it coming as a shock. Yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, keeping the kids maybe even as part of the process Yeah, as you make those decisions, I think that probably ultimately is going to be better for them. And I think the other point is that some parents, they actually limit what the children can do with the money because they don't trust them. You know, that's ultimately what a trust is. But I think that, again, is harmful. You know, you've got to let them hurt themselves. You know, if they want to blow the cash, so be it. But your imposing of your will after you die, I think, is almost a toxic thing. Yeah, it's overly controlling and just a bit weird, isn't it? <laughs> but you've had your time. Move on, Grandad. <laughs> well, these kind of conditional wills which say, you know, you can have the money if X, Y and Z. It's just terrible. So are we saying it all really comes down to setting a good example involving your children in the financial decisions and letting them learn through doing, let them burn themselves a little bit before you give them too much money. Yeah, that's the way I think it's best to approach it. And I think if they are inheriting a significant sum, they're always going to become targets for scams, either just avert scams or people looking to befriend them or get into relationships with them to you know, <laughs> siphon a little money off. So being able to build a little uh, scam detector in them would be helpful. Yeah, that would be very valuable. But again, you know, that's education. If someone's offering you high returns with low risk, immediately that tells you they're a liar. Or if they're offering you returns of, say, 15% every year forever, well, probably a scam, right? So I'd say you can build in these kind of bullshit filters for your kids that immediately flag stuff as being dodgy. You know, even something as basic as someone contacting you with an investment opportunity, supposedly. You know, that's basically a red flag. You know, if they've contacted you, it's almost certainly a scam. If you're thinking about leaving money for future generations in your family, then why not join us on pensioncraft.com, where you can discuss this with other like-minded people. Okay, today's dumb question of the week comes from one of our listeners, Adam, who's also one of my friends and... One of the smartest guys I know, but also really dumb about finances. So let's talk in simple terms here, Roman. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Adam. So his dumb question is, is government debt stealing from future generations? Because we hear it all the time in politics, don't we? There's this kind of play that's acted out between left and right, which is around, are we living beyond our means? In some sense, are we enjoying higher standards of living today by reducing the standard of living of generations that are yet to come? What do you think? I think. The answer is probably yes, but not because of the debt. Oh, good. Now, the thing to understand about debt is that it's almost impossible to run a government without it. Because if you think about the kind of finances of a government, it has outgoings, which it has to pay just to keep the state running. And then it's got its income, which is largely from taxes. 
as sometimes those two are not going to match up. So the pandemic is a really nice example of that, where you have a sudden shock and you have to shake what people call the magic money tree and get that money immediately deployed to help people. And the states are able to do that. You know, they can issue money. That is one of the benefits of being the government if you have control over your own currency. So basically the state spends more than it's got coming in for a certain period of time. Yeah. I mean, in most Western countries, that certain period of time is almost forever, right? We're almost spending more than we take in in taxes. Well, that again, we can talk about that because I think a lot of content on YouTube talks about debt unsustainability, but doesn't seem to capture the really basic concept, which is that if your income is increasing faster than your debt, then it's sustainable. And it doesn't matter that it's a hundred trillion, a billion, a trillion, trillion, trillion. If your debt is growing at a lower rate than your income, which is your GDP, that's what really matters. That's what sustainability is. Yeah, so I did a bit of reading around it. And there is a genuine debate here between economists of, is this debt going to be a burden effectively? Let me guess, do economists not agree? Economists don't agree. (laughs) (laughs) And the way I sort of processed it all was that they kind of agree, if you squint hard enough, that it can be a burden or not depending on what you're borrowing the money for. So if you're borrowing it just to give it away to old people who go on holidays abroad and import goods, that then does have to be paid for. That's not going to boost growth in your country. Whereas if you're spending on infrastructure, smart infrastructure, not, you know, a presidential palace (laughs) and, (laughs) and education, then that is investing right in the future and that future generation. So that's actually helping them and should boost growth. So in a sense, it's like investing in a company where if you've got a given project, is the return on equity above your cost of capital? For example, let's say you're building a new factory and it's going to generate a 6% return on the invested amount. If your cost of capital is 5%, you can borrow at 5%, earn at 6%, and it makes sense. So in a sense, it's return on government debt that we're talking about. So it's long-term return, but it's much more difficult to quantify. That's the problem, isn't it? Yeah, that's the thing. When you're making an investment decision as the government and you're thinking, oh, do I build this train line to cities that don't yet really exist or aren't productive? It's hard, right, to know. If you build this motorway, how much is it going to increase GDP? If you build this fibre network for the broadband for your country, how much is it going to increase productivity? Yeah, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Which is why governments can basically say anything to justify spending or to justify austerity. And there's this nice quote from Simon Wren Lewis, and he's an economist who thinks that debt can be a burden, but that austerity that we had after the financial crisis was a much bigger burden for the younger generations. So he said, to the extent that we have austerity through lower investment in infrastructure or education, it is the young more than the old that will be hurt by this policy. High unemployment among the young today can have lasting effects on their welfare and their children's welfare. And more generally, the hysteresis effects of austerity today are significant and an entire future generation may be worse off as a result. So it's like you're not investing enough. Hysteresis is a physics word. Did you know that? (laughs) What does it mean? (laughs) If you're magnetising something, you get this hysteresis effect. But essentially, it's the idea that the system remembers the past. For example, if you have a period of austerity and then the austerity ends, and then you get austerity again, the net effect is worse than if, you know, you just entered austerity the first time. So it's a system remembering damage from the past. The scarring effects, I've heard it referred to as well. Yeah, it is scarring. Yeah, exactly that. 
And I also read a good piece from Noah Smith, who's another economist, and he has the concept of screwage. Like, who are you screwing over <laughs> <right>? <laughs> with, uh, with issuing debt and then subsequently tax rises if you need to, to pay it? And he says the magnitude of the screwage, if you like, is not necessarily related to the size of the government debt. So he says, in other words, the debt may be $10 trillion today, but the total amount of necessary screwage might be much smaller or might even be zero. This can happen, for example, if the government spends money on the same people it taxes for that money. So debt is not a bookkeeping exercise that faithfully records the amount of necessary future screwage. You know, ultimately, the screwage is going to, the people who get screwed are going to be the poor, unless they do manage to raise enough capital to invest. And it's the same for house prices, right? That's another kind of non-productive investment, which governments often hand out sponsorship for effectively. You know, things like the help to buy scheme in the UK. So instead of producing more housing, you simply... Inflate an asset bubble. Inflate an asset bubble by producing these incentive schemes where the government effectively underwrites the debt. So there's a whole broader question here, really, of macroeconomics and government policy and how can debt cause problems and is it causing problems? And what people usually talk about is something called a liquidity trap, where you have low interest rates and people save money, but people don't want to buy bonds because they're worried that interest rates will increase and they don't want to take that risk. So they keep it in zero duration assets, which is essentially cash and deposits with their bank. And at the same time, if you've got poor growth, the banks have lots of deposits, but they don't have anyone to give that money to that they think is qualified. So what you end up with is this period of stagnation that's very difficult to get out of. To give an example of that, the ECB was pretty much in this situation in 2008 where banks weren't lending and people were putting money into cash and not investing in bonds, for example. So the way they got around that was to go even more extreme in terms of interest rate policy and go for a NERP policy, a negative interest rate policy, and also a huge programme of QE, quantitative easing. Eventually, activity started to pick up again. Perhaps that was the cause of it. But that liquidity trap is not a bad description of where we are today. You know, with very low interest rates, although they are increasing, very high savings rates, certainly through the pandemic, although that has tailed off. And the saving rates seem to be very unequally distributed among society. So the rich have very high saving rates and the poor save nothing or even negative amounts, right? They're living on credit. True. And I think the other thing is that just speaking to people, absolutely everybody I speak to at the moment is still saying I wouldn't buy bonds because I think interest rates are going to go up. So I think that's exactly the situation we're in, certainly for that particular aspect of the liquidity trap. But the way people usually break out of it is growth, almost by accident perhaps, but things like monetary policy can correct it if interest rates do increase. But then the problem becomes, can the government service the debt? And that leads to something else, which is called the debt trap. So we've gone from liquidity trap to debt trap. (laughs) (laughs) And it was a really nice paper, actually you found it, Michael, which is by Mian Straub and Sufi, which is called Indebted Demand, where they actually say that Large debt burdens lower aggregate demand and also the natural rate of interest. So this natural rate of interest is something which we have talked about in the past, I think. But it's the rate at which monetary policy is neither restrictive nor accommodative. The neutral rate. So it's a neutral rate which doesn't affect inflation. But the point is, when demand is indebted, the economy gets stuck in a debt-driven liquidity trap or debt trap. 
When you say demand is indebted, you mean people are funding their consumption by taking on debt. Which makes sense, because if interest rates are low, why wouldn't you do that? But that creates an immediate problem, which is that if interest rates now increase, then you have to service that debt. It becomes more expensive to do that, and demand immediately drops. The central bank is left in this sticky problem of how do you get out of this? You can't raise interest rates because it reduces demand, and you know you just pushed back to that zero lower bound. And I think the other issue they raise in that paper is a lot of the debt is owned effectively by the richer people in society who spend less. So they're the one receiving this income from the poor. So it's kind of a self-reinforcing way of increasing inequality. And the rich spend less of their income than the poor. So you just get less and less demand over time. Yeah, the propensity to spend reduces as you get more wealth. So if we're talking about growing our way out of a national debt problem, you can't do it, right, when inequality is really high. Or at least this paper suggests you can't. And their solution is to have less conventional macroeconomic policies, such as redistribution. That's not going to go down well. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, maybe. It's how you do it, right? But it would be things like inheritance tax being higher, for example, because that effectively reduces this kind of generational wealth and redistributes it through society. But again, you know, I think it really depends on what the government does with the taxes it raises. Is it going to be spent on productive projects or is it going to be spent on kind of bread and circuses kind of pleasing the populace with schemes to inflate the housing bubble even further you know i I just think i have very little faith in the government to do the right thing with the money that's the difficulty with redistributive policies yeah and especially if you think about emerging markets like to just take a really extreme example of can government borrowing be a problem for future generations? To me, the answer is clearly yes, it can. If you're in some sort of developing country and the leader is running a deficit and borrowing loads of money to siphon it off into tax havens and to build statues of themselves in the town square, (laughs) then obviously the country is going to be screwed long term. (laughs) It's feeling a little bit more like that here, I have to say. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, a lot of the pandemic spending doesn't seem to have gone to the right people. What are you saying, Michael? There's big write-offs, right, in terms of the uh, bailouts of small businesses. A lot of businesses are folding. And I hear number 10's got a very nice kitchen. (laughs) (laughs) But just going back to that paper you mentioned, the Economist did a good article summarising it, and they talked about this kind of Goldilocks zone for government debt, where you don't want it to be too high, but you don't want it to be too low either, because if it's too low then demand falls for a lot of the reasons we've said. And I think a lot of people in politics kind of think about government debt in a weird way where there's this cognitive dissonance going on. So I remember Stephanie Kelton, who wrote the book on modern monetary theory, which I'm not completely subscribed up to, but she's a very thoughtful person. And she said, when she talks to senators in the US and says, if you could tomorrow click your fingers and the US national debt was just gone, would you do it? And they all pretty much say, yeah, just click your fingers, the debt's gone, brilliant. And then she says, well, would you also, you know, if you could click your fingers tomorrow and just get rid of all US treasuries, they go, oh, of course not. No, why would I want to do that? (laughs) They're the same thing, right? The debt is the treasuries and it's an investable asset class, which we need. It underpins the world economy. Yeah, I think I think people don't appreciate that's what a loss of debt and less debt would actually mean. It is a really useful asset class. Having that risk free asset effectively underpins the global economy. So if we could steal from future generations, should we? (laughs) That's the other question. (laughs) Or do we owe them something? Do we owe the unborn something? Because we'll be dead anyway. The elephant in the room here is climate change, right? If we don't spend now and invest now 
to fix our energy consumption and all these problems around the heating planet. Who cares about all this stuff, right? We kind of need to invest now. And that was what I was thinking about when we first asked the question, which is that I don't think debt's the problem. I think our use of resources, but also our approach to living is very different from the way it probably should be. And one of the really draconian sounding things is having less kids, because the single best thing you can do for the environment, unlike Elon Musk, is not having lots of kids, because each child obviously consumes more. It's a balance though, isn't it? You've got to kind of sustain the population a little bit or growth's going to be rubbish, probably. Well, sustaining the population isn't an issue. Not having enough people isn't a problem. Certainly not at this point. Well, I think I'll stick with one. I've got myself a little baby buffet. I don't need a baby monger as well. Yeah, I've got two. That's plenty. And a cockapoo. Thank you for joining us for many happy returns. It would be great if you could leave us a quick rating or review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the show. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership, courses, and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pensioncraft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.